If you're an American, then you've probably heard of Johnny Appleseed. And when I say Johnny Appleseed, you're probably thinking of a guy wearing rags and a tin pot on his head, spreading apple seeds across the American frontier in the 1800s, barefoot, dirt poor, and chomping into a delicious, juicy apple. I hear that if I eat one of these every day, I don't need health insurance. Like John Henry or Pico Spill or Davy Crockett, Johnny Appleseed is one of a handful of mythic American folk heroes from the 1800s who are still hanging out in the popular consciousness today. He's even become a turn of phrase here in America. In the popular imagination, Johnny Appleseed wandered around planting apple trees willy-nilly. So calling someone the Johnny Appleseed of something is a way of saying they're running around spreading an idea or a practice or a habit. You're like the Johnny Appleseed of warrants. Wow. Like everywhere you go, you're leaving warrants behind so you can find your way back. But what a lot of people don't know is that Johnny Appleseed actually was a real guy. And though he sure did plant a lot of apple trees, it wasn't for the reasons we were taught in school. Johnny Appleseed's real goal was to secure himself a comfortable place in heaven and get his fellow pioneers absolutely wasted. You'll see exactly what I mean in just a minute, but first I want to give a shout out to the Johnny Appleseed of web design, our sponsor, Squarespace. We're in the first month of a brand new year, and while most people have already forgotten their New Year's resolutions, you don't have to be one of them. You can still take your business, hobby, or passion project to the next level with Squarespace. From their huge library of website templates to their intuitive drag-and-drop design tools, anyone can look like a professional web designer, even if you've had no experience in the field before. Business owners can manage their inventory and online orders, creators can house exclusive content their audience pays to access, not to mention they even offer marketing tools and analytics so you can gauge how successful your website is and capitalize on that success. The best part is all of these features can be accessed inside your web browser, which means no downloads or patches. And if you need any help learning how to use them, Squarespace offers tutorials and has a wicked smart customer support team that's available 24-7. So if you want to crush your 2024 goals, why not join me and the thousands of mere mortals who didn't let our dreams stay dreams. Just go to squarespace.com slash John Solo to start a completely free trial. And when your site is ready for launch, use code John Solo to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So as I stated in the intro, Johnny Appleseed was in fact a real dude, and his life story was so bizarre, it's kind of hard to believe. As far as we know, Johnny Appleseed never actually called himself Johnny Appleseed. His real name was John Chapman, and he was born in 1774 in Leominster, Massachusetts, which honored him by naming their elementary school after him. We don't know a lot about John Chapman's early life, but we do know his father Nathaniel Chapman fought at the Battle of Concord, which kicked off the American War of Independence. We also know John Chapman grew up on a family farm with his nine siblings, and his mother passed away when he was only two years old. Chapman's ancestors came to New England from Old England during the Puritan Great Migration in the 1600s. But by the time John was growing up, New Englanders had given up on Puritanism and were experimenting with new, more exciting versions of Christianity. They were also heading west. In the years right after the Revolution, Americans from all over the East Coast were moving to the other side of the Appalachian Mountains looking for land to farm and live on. Pretty exciting if you were a poor farmer from the East, but 
not so exciting if you were a citizen of the Shawnee tribe in what was suddenly being called Ohio, where the formerly open land was now being claimed by colonialists. We're not sure exactly when Johnny himself headed west from Massachusetts, but we do know that by 1801, when he was 27, he'd started doing what he's best known for, traveling alone on the fringes of the frontier in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, West Virginia, and Ontario, planting apple trees wherever he saw fit. What a lot of people don't realize is that John Chapman wasn't just dropping these seeds anywhere. He knew exactly what he was doing and would establish nurseries wherever he knew big settlements were going to be established. Let's look at an example. Decades earlier, during the Revolutionary War, the U.S. was declaring its independence from the United Kingdom, but Canada stayed part of the U.K. However, the U.S. did successfully recruit some Canadians to their side to help fight the British during the invasion of Quebec. After the war, the Canadians who helped the U.S. were forced to leave British Canada because of, you know, all the treason they did. So the U.S. government promised these new Canadian refugees land. Sounds like a nice gesture, but the refugees didn't receive this land until decades later in 1801 when Congress finally decided where that land would be which turned out to be in the middle of Ohio near what's now Columbus. I know, imagine betraying your country and the country that you helped out plants you in Ohio. I'd be like, is this part of my prison sentence? What are we doing here? Well, as soon as that was settled, Chapman headed into the area ahead of the Canadian refugees and established apple tree nurseries. So when the new settlers rolled in, he already had apples and apple trees to sell them. But don't get it twisted. John Chapman was not your average speculative real estate developer. He was way weirder than that. For one thing, John Chapman never had a fixed address through the entirety of his adult life. And he seems to have just stayed with families he met when he was bopping around. Our best source on Chapman is a Harper's New Monthly Magazine article written a few decades after his death. But despite him being long gone by this time, it is full of great details. In personal appearance, Chapman was a small, wiry man full of restless activity. He had long, dark hair, a scanty beard that was never shaved, and keen black eyes that sparkled with a peculiar brightness. His dress was generally composed of cast-off clothing that he had taken in payment for apple trees. In his later years, however, he seems to have thought that even this kind of secondhand garment was too luxurious, as his principal garment was made of a coffee sack in which he cut holes for his head and arms to pass through and pronounced it a very serviceable cloak and as good clothing as any man need wear. Even in the coldest weather, he went barefoot, but sometimes, for his long journeys, he would make himself a rude pair of sandals. At other times, he would wear any cast-off foot covering he chanced to find a boot on one foot and an old brogan or moccasin on the other. He also seems to have really worn a tin pot on his head for a while. And Chapman's tin pot wasn't just a funny hat. It was also the same tin pot he cooked his food with. I mean, I guess it's a cool look. Probably should have washed it though. The Harper's article goes on to say, when he consented to eat with any family, he would never sit down at the table unless he was assured that there was ample supply for the children. But unlike his choices for apparel, Johnny wouldn't eat just anything. He was a strict vegetarian. Harper says he believed it a sin to kill any creature for food and thought that all that was necessary for human sustenance was produced by the soil. He also got along with the area's original residents. Harper says 
the Indians also treated Johnny with the greatest respect. He was regarded as a great medicine man on account of his strange appearance, eccentric actions, and especially the fortitude with which he could endure pain, and proof of which he would often thrust pins and needles into his flesh. Yeah, I don't think I'd mess with that guy. According to the Harper's article, in the War of 1812, when many of the natives in Ohio fought for the British against the American settlers, there was a whole lot of torturing and slaughtering on both sides. But John Chapman was left alone by the natives to just do his thing. Though at one point, Chapman may have used this free pass to help the settlers. Harper says, large bands of Indians and British were destroying everything before them and murdering women and children. And at this time, Johnny traveled day and night warning people of the approaching danger. In the five decades John Chapman lived on the American frontier, he definitely saw some shit, but from what we can tell, he never participated in it, following a strict save the drama for your mama policy. So why was John Chapman such an unusual and principled kind of guy? Some of it might have had to do with his very niche religion. Don't worry, it's not Scientology. By 1817, we know John Chapman had become a devoted follower of a Swedish Christian philosopher, scientist, and theologian named Emanuel Swedenborg, who had lived in the 1700s. Swedenborg had originally been an inventor and professor, but made a drastic career change at age 53 after he was allegedly visited by angels. These angels told Swedenborg he had been chosen by God to advance a new understanding of the scriptures, and they also gave him a tour of heaven and hell. You know, as angels do. Swedenborg's first spiritual writing was called The Heavenly Doctrine, and he followed that up with many others, the most famous being Heaven and Its Wonders and Hell from Things Heard and Seen not the catchiest of titles. Swedenborg founded what he called the New Church and had a few ideas he wanted to get across. He believed life was an ongoing process of spiritual growth and that spiritual growth was largely about developing your own capacity for love. Based on that trip to heaven he took with the angels, he wrote that our souls continued that spiritual growth even after death. He also believed nature was a mirror of the spiritual world and that all things were interconnected and that every element of nature corresponded to something in the spiritual realm. Kinda like the upside down on Stranger Things, but not as drippy or murdery. Swedenborg died a few years before John Chapman was born and his ideas weren't super widespread in the early US, but to Johnny Appleseed, Swedenborg was the apple souse. We know this because our first actual account of Johnny Appleseed comes from a Swedenborgian society in England describing a very extraordinary missionary in what was then the Western United States. He goes barefooted, can sleep anywhere, in-house or out-of-house, and live upon the coarsest and most scanty fare. He has actually thawed the ice with his bare feet. He procures what books he can of the new church, travels into remote settlements, and lends them wherever he can find readers. This man for years past has been in the employment of bringing into cultivation in numberless places in the wilderness small patches, two or three acres of ground and then sowing apple seeds and rearing nurseries. These become valuable as the settlements approximate and the profits of the whole are intended for the purpose of enabling him to print all the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg and distribute them through the western settlements of the United States. For some reason, John Chapman never got married. 
This may have had something to do with him wearing cookware on his head, but he did say that if he didn't find his soulmate here on Earth, he would find her in heaven. This was also a Swedenborgian idea. Swedenborg believed in a concept called conjugal love, a deep spiritual love sourced from God himself that mirrored the relationship between goodness and truth. Meaning, if your love life sucks here on Earth, don't worry. You can still hook up with the one in heaven. The only catch is you'll have to live out your mortal life in constant loneliness and then die. According to Harper's, John Chapman himself actually claimed to have conversations with angels and spirits, specifically female ones, who told him they would be his wives in the future if he avoided marriage while on Earth. Kinda sounds like something you'd say when you're trying to let someone here on Earth down easy. Like, babe, I'd love to make this official, but I've got literal angels waiting to get on this ride. I'm sure you can understand. Swedenborg actually had a few more celebrity fans later on in history. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote Introducing the Mystic, one of the most important essays about Swedenborg, and Helen Keller said in her book, How I Would Help the World, that she was a Swedenborg believer and had discovered his writings in Braille as a teenager. But while Emerson and Helen Keller were just kind of in the Swedenborg fan club, Johnny Appleseed made Swedenborg his whole personality. According to the Harper's article, it was his custom when he had been welcomed to some hospitable log house after a very long day of journeying to lie down on the puncheon floor and, after inquiring if his auditors would hear some news right fresh from heaven, produce his few tattered books, amongst which would be a New Testament, and read and expound. Basically, if you let Johnny Appleseed into your house, he was going to read you some Bible stories and throw in some Swedenborgian commentary. Not something I want from my house guests, but this could have been pretty exciting on a slow Wednesday night on the frontier, I guess. After all, it's not like they could whip out their smartphones and cozy up to a new episode of Messed Up Origins when they're bored. Or maybe there was another reason they let Johnny Appleseed crash on their floor. The author Michael Pollan, who's most famous for his books The Omnivore's Dilemma and How to Change Your Mind, which I've read through and highlighted a few too many times, wrote about Johnny Appleseed in his book The Botany of Desire. While doing press for that book, Pollan said, People didn't go to the frontier without their apple seeds. And this is why Johnny Appleseed was such an important figure. You see, apples in the 1800s weren't just a snack. Sure, you could bake them into your pies or pummel them into applesauce for your toddler or feed them to your pigs, but some would brew apples into apple cider, which in those days was usually alcoholic. What was great about brewing hard cider wasn't only that it got you drunk, the alcohol actually kept bacteria away. You could store apple cider a lot longer than you could store apples, or a lot of other things you would make with them. That meant a barrel of tasty calories to help you survive the lean times of winter, plus the buzz to help you tolerate the cold. You can also turn hard cider into other things, like apple cider vinegar, which you can cook and clean with. Or you can turn it into Apple Jack, which is the hard liquor version. That one is mainly for getting drunk. Johnny Appleseed was basically Martha Stewart, Mr. Clean, and Dr. McGillicuddy all rolled into one. Frontier settlers were really, really far from the big towns and banks and businesses in the East. And since alcoholic liquids like hard cider were so valuable for so many things and took so long to go bad, they were as good as cash. 
So in a way, money did grow on trees. Pollan goes on to say, I really did not know he was a historical figure, but he was. He's just not as we're told he was. And the reason is right there in the name, because Johnny Appleseed's process for growing apple trees was unique compared to methods used today. As his name hints at, he grew his apple trees from real apple seeds. Just pretend this Lego is an apple seed. I didn't want to touch one because I hear they're extremely poisonous. I swallowed apple seeds. So what? Are they poisonous? Are you kidding me, dude? They're extremely poisonous. They're absolutely no. not poisonous. Uh, Should I make myself throw up? I would throw up now. Oh, God damn it. As the Harper's article puts it, he would describe the growing and ripening fruit as such a rare and beautiful gift of the Almighty. But then they add, his enthusiasm for the cultivation of apple trees in what he termed the only proper way, that is, from the seed, was the absorbing object of his life. He called it the proper way because you actually don't have to grow an apple tree from an apple seed. You see, apples are originally native to Kazakhstan and were brought to North America by English colonists. And the traditional English way of growing delicious apples is by doing something called grafting. Grafting means taking a little stem of an existing apple tree that you know grows great apples, cutting it off, and then attaching that branch to another tree that's already growing. The rooted tree feeds the transplanted apple stem, and apples actually grow on it. By grafting, you guarantee you'll be getting similar apples to the ones that grew on your original tree. And this is how most apples you can buy are grown. If you have apples in your kitchen right now, those are probably grafted apples. But Johnny Appleseed hated grafting. Harper says, he denounced as absolute wickedness all devices of pruning and grafting and would speak of the act of cutting a tree as if it were a cruelty inflicted on a sentient being. You apologize to the tree right now or I am calling for backup. To put it another way, he saw grafting, chopping off one part of a tree and fusing it to another as some totally up human centipede shit. But there is one kinda major issue when you choose not to graft and just grow the tree directly from the seed. That wild apple usually comes out tart and bitter, meaning the apples Johnny was growing were most likely not even eaten and instead were exclusively used for making cider. That's why Michael Pollan says, Johnny Appleseed was bringing the gift of alcohol to the frontier. That's why he was so popular. That's why he was welcome in every cabin in Ohio. He was the American Dionysus. He was the guy bringing the booze. I suppose that would make his pontificating on religion a little easier to tolerate. After many, many years of exploring the frontier, establishing his nurseries, and nerding out about Swedenborg, John Chapman died in March of 1845 in Fort Wayne, Indiana and people believe his grave is in what's now called Johnny Appleseed Park. But while he had made a name for himself during his lifetime, it wasn't until 1871, almost 30 years after his death, that Chapman really got famous when the Harper's New Monthly Magazine article I've been citing was published. This article is the most descriptive source we have on John Chapman the man, and it was also the beginning of Johnny Appleseed the legend. After the Harper's article made the general American public Appleseed aware, literary writers started having their way with him and his public image slowly evolved into the character that most Americans think of today. Nine years after that article, the abolitionist author Lydia Marie Child mythologized Johnny Appleseed in a poem 
and ever since then, there have been songs, poems, and storybooks galore written about Johnny Appleseed. Some may have even ended up in your classroom or school libraries. In the 1920s, there was a series of popular poems written by the poet Vachel Lindsay. Yes, Vachel. Not Rachel, Vachel. Vachel Lindsay's poems portrayed Johnny as innocent, adventurous, and romantic. He avoided mentioning the booze because this was during Prohibition. In 1948, Johnny Appleseed appeared in a segment of Disney's animated anthology series, Melody Time. And this version is probably the primary source of our pop cultural idea of him. It opens by comparing Johnny Appleseed to more traditional tough guy heroes like Paul Bunyan, John Henry, and Davy Crockett, and then introduces us to a young Johnny who's a Pittsburgh apple grower. He's so grateful for what God's given him that he sings about it all day long. Then he watches pioneers depart for the West and changes his tune, literally. Suddenly, he feels like growing apples is useless. He wishes he could go west, too, but he thinks he's too scrawny to survive in the wild. But then Johnny is visited by an angel, who has a mustache for some reason. Probably because Walt Disney had a pro-mustache agenda. Anyway, this tells him to go west and plant apple seeds everywhere so settlers always have something to eat. Apparently, Disney's writers didn't look into the whole grafting versus seed thing. Honestly, this part seems like they just needed to inject some conflict to fit a Hollywood beat sheet but it also helps present Johnny Appleseed as a different, gentler kind of frontier hero. After walking hundreds of miles and planting a bunch of trees, the narrator says, as more and more pioneers come to push back the forest, the kindly deeds of little Johnny Appleseed spread throughout the land. You also get a peek at a group of settlers having a little apple party where they enjoy everything you possibly could make out of apples, except for hard cider. I guess the writers at Disney weren't going for historical accuracy, because if they did, this group would be hammered. In the end, after many years of planting trees and never shaving, Johnny rests under a tree, and the angel tells him his time on Earth is done. Johnny's not so excited about dying, but the angel says heaven needs apple trees too, and apparently that's good enough for him to leave his earthly form behind. I hope they don't need YouTube videos in heaven anytime soon. If they do, I'll just point them toward Mr. Beast. He's done enough on the mortal plane already. Now, this Disney version really has influenced how people think about Johnny Appleseed, but here's what's tricky about that. The modern historian Edward Ayer says in his book, American Visions, that the myth of Johnny Appleseed came to represent the American frontier cleansed of dispossession and dispoliation. What Ayers is getting at is that the era of westward migration was actually a pretty dark time all around. If you've played Oregon Trail, you already know where this is going. Settlers were largely driven to these new, dangerous lands as a result of poverty and desperation, and this mass migration culminated into violence, theft, and degradation for Native people across the continent. So this story of a genuinely kind white Christian who conquered new lands with seeds instead of bullets became very appealing to some Americans who wanted to romanticize westward expansion with a hero who had less blood on his hands. Now, if this deep dive into Johnny Appleseed's messed up origins was wasn't enough for you, you can find countless poems and storybooks about the man they called Johnny Appleseed, 
or you can listen to Bing Crosby or Gene Autry sing all about him. Just keep in mind that these songs and stories are really about the sanitized, Disney-fied Johnny Appleseed. Now, what's so messed up about Johnny Appleseed isn't so much his quirky eccentricities, it's how the myths about him erased some of his best ones. Whatever the reasons, 20th century storytellers didn't want him to be a crackpot, secret millionaire booze hound, but that was the reality. Now, if you enjoyed this deep dive into American history, let me know by sacrificing those five-star and follow buttons to the Swedenborgian gods. And shoot me a message on social media telling me where you were first introduced to Johnny Appleseed. Was it a book? The Disney cartoon? Can you even remember? Let me know. I'll speak with you again next week when we dive into the messed up origins of a highly requested nursery rhyme. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first. Thank you.